Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. So we start a new study today in the book of Galatians. Um, I don't think it'll take us too long to go through it. Probably about six months, I would guess. That's just a, that's just a guess. Um, but today we're just going to get through one, one verse. So how did I decide on Galatians? Well, we just came out of a... It took us 17 months to go through the... Uh, Gospel of John, and uh, in the Gospel of John, of course, we are witnesses to the very beginnings of the spread of the Gospel. Of course, Jesus comes on the scene and and uh, ministry ministers for three years, and he, you know, we we we, we saw how everybody left him, but it just kind of came down to a small group of men and women, and that was really the beginning of the um, early church. So I thought, well, why don't we turn and take a look at a letter? Uh, to the early church, and in fact, a letter that deals with some of the issues that the early church had. And there was one really one letter that kind of stood out to me, and that was the uh, the, the book of Galatians. And so uh, we, we turn today to Law's, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, first about about Galatia, a little bit of background on it. Um, Paul writes a letter, and and right there at the beginning it says to the churches of Galatia. Uh, so a couple of things. This was not Galatia was not a city or a town. It was a province or a region. It was an area, and so Paul is writing this letter to be read at multiple churches. He wouldn't. It'd be like saying to the churches of Walkala County, not just to the Church of River of Life. He's not writing to one church. He's writing to uh, multiple churches in the province of it was a Roman province called Galatia, um, and it it's basically exists today where. Uh, where you'd find modern-day uh, Turkey. Uh, the people, its name, uh, the people who occupied this area uh, was a bunch of barbarians who invaded around the 3rd century B.C. They invaded a, a place called Macedonia, um, and they were called the Gauls, G-A-U-L-S. And so they invaded. So you had these Gauls here in modern-day Turkey, but then you had the Gauls that remained in Western Europe. And so to distinguish them, in popular speech or culture, they, they, they refer to these people uh, here as Gallo-Grecians, or Gallo-Grecians. That sounds better. And that eventually, Gallo-Grecians eventually became Galatians. That's how they referred to these people. So when the Romans came in and took over, they kind of expanded this area, um, but they kept the name, and so they called this the province of um, Galatia. Now, the book of Acts, which we studied years ago, uh, if you go back and read that, uh, that shows Paul traveling through that region. Uh, now, whether he established the churches or whether the churches were established by somebody else, the book of Acts doesn't tell us, um, so we don't really know. But we do know that he visited those churches very early on. But after he leaves, um, he apparently gets some really disturbing news. Because after he's got these churches up and going and he leaves, some men come from Jerusalem claiming to be the Lord's, uh, uh, James, uh, claiming to be disciples uh, of James, the Lord's brother. And they began to say, you know what, Paul, some of the things he said was okay, but he didn't have all the truth. You need to do some additional things. And basically what they began to teach was that in order to be saved, you have to add something to grace. You have to add rules and works and regulations to grace. In other words, grace is, is not enough. And so they really began to establish what we would know as legalism, and we'll talk about that um, much more. So they basically told the Gentiles that were in the church, listen, you have to come and become a Jew. You have to begin to observe the Sabbath. You have to be circumcised. You have to uh, do all these different things uh, in order to be uh, saved. In other words, they taught that works must be added to grace. Everybody with me? Which is every false religion that's ever existed from the dawn of time will always be about works. Because if it's human built, humans think we have to work for it. So anytime you see works being added, you, you need to, there needs to be a big red flag go up because that should say that should say religion, human, not God. Um, so Paul, of course, sees this as that's a different gospel than I'm preaching to you. And he will not stand for that. So he writes this letter to the churches to deal 
with this uh, to deal with this problem. Now let's let's get back to a little bit more about the letter. When was the letter written? Um, there was a council of Jerusalem that occurred in 48 A.D., about 15 years after Jesus died. Uh, they held a big council in Jerusalem, and they're pretty sure, scholars are pretty sure, that occurred around 48 A.D. And the reason this council convened or came together uh, was to discuss this very problem. Uh, what is required of Gentiles who have been saved? Now, the fact is, in Paul's letter, he doesn't even mention this council. So what should that tell us? If Paul doesn't mention this council, by the way, who's dealing with the same problem that he's dealing with, what does that tell us? No, it doesn't tell us that he doesn't recognize it because he recognized it. It hadn't happened yet. In other words, that's exactly right. He, he, in fact, we know he recognized that because he was part of it. So what that tells us is that he probably wrote this letter before that happened. Everybody with me? Because he would have undoubtedly used that if it had already happened. So what we know from that, or what we're pretty sure of is that, is this letter was written probably less than 15 years after Jesus died. So we're not talking about something that was written way down the road. We're talking about very early in the church. I mean, 12, 15, 16 years, somewhere in there after Jesus died. Now, some scholars do date it as late as 60 A.D., which again, that's only 27 years after Jesus died. So we know this letter was written, even at the, at, the, at the most, it was written less than 30 years after the death of Jesus. So this is a very early letter uh, in the church, and it gives us insight into some of the very early issues that the church encountered. And, what, and by the way, when we move along, what you'll find out is human nature is human nature. The same things they had problems with, we still have problems with today. Nothing changes. That's why these letters that are written, even though they're written 2,000 years ago, they are so incredibly prevalent um, uh, to what we have uh, or what was going on today. So a little bit more about Galatians before we begin. When you get into this letter, uh, you, Paul is, in some parts of it, you can almost tell he's angry. In some parts of it, he's shocked. And, and there is a lot of emotion um, in this letter. And you can't go ten verses without seeing or, or, or feeling that something really, really important is at stake. And that's exactly what you're going to find out. In fact, Galatians is a short later letter that exalts the two central truths of Christianity. And that is this. The cross of Christ is the only way you can get right with God. And the spirit of Christ is the only way you can obey God. Okay? Those are, I mean, I don't know how it gets any clearer than that. And Paul will bring this up over and over again. In fact, ten year, I'm going to bring this up so many times in this study that ten years from now, if somebody walks up to you in Winn-Dixie and says, what's Galatians about? You're going to say, oh, I know two things. The cross of Christ is the only way you can get right with God, and the Spirit of Christ is the only way you can obey God. Paul is, I mean, he just hammers on these two, uh, on these two truths. Um, so anything that diminishes the beauty and all-sufficiency of what happened on the cross, that is anathema, or that is, that is damnation to, to Paul. He will not deal with that. Um, and anything that puts our willing or our working ahead of the Spirit of God, that Paul says you've been bewitched. He'll use that word over and over again. And so again, Paul's not going to stand for those two things. So let's, let's turn to verse 1, which is all we'll get through today. And, um, and, and um, we'll see what it says. It says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now already you're thinking, how in the world is he going to spend another 45 minutes on that, right? But, but you know I can do that, all right? So in verse 1, Paul calls himself an apostle. Now the word apostle means, if you don't know this, it means one who is sent. In fact, I, I went out uh, right here, I grabbed the, the Greek lexicon. So that word apostle, um, which comes from the Greek word apostolos, means one who is sent, a messenger. Okay? For example, Jesus uses this word in John 13, 16. He said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is a messenger, that's the word apostle, neither is an apostle greater than the one who sent him. 
So the apostle just means one who is, is sent. Now, keep in mind in the New Testament, the word apostle kind of had two meanings. It had a general meaning and it had a very particular or very specific meaning. In a general sense, it was used for representatives sent out by a church on a mission. So for example, Paul says this about Epaphroditus who had been, by the, who had been sent by the church at Philippi to Paul. In Philippians 2.25 he said this, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your apostle and minister to my needs. Everybody see that? So he says Epaphroditus was an apostle. He was one who was sent by the church. Everybody with me? Okay, so that's a very general use of the term. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he mentions men who were appointed by the churches in Macedonia to help Paul take money to the poor in Jerusalem. And he calls these men apostles. 2 Corinthians 8.23 As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And, and as for our brothers, they are, there it is again, apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ. In other words, all they were, they were sent by the church to help Paul carry money to the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul says they are what? Apostles. They're messengers. So everybody see how this is a very general sense. So in a general sense, anybody who is sent on a mission or as a representative of a church is called what? An apostle. Now, watch what Paul says. If you watch carefully in Paul's opening statement, he denies that he's that kind of an apostle. Watch what he says. Paul, an apostle, a messenger, one who is sent, and he stops and says this, not from men nor through men. In other words, Paul says, don't class me in the same class as Epaphroditus. I'm not just this general messenger sent out from churches. I wasn't sent by any church. I wasn't sent by any organization. I wasn't sent by man. Everybody see that? So he's saying, I'm not, an, I'm not that messenger in a general sense. I'm a messenger in a very specific sense. And he goes on to say this. In fact, he says this. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but what? Through Jesus Christ and God the Father. What is he saying there? Who's sinning? Jesus. He said, I'm not sent by just a general church. I'm not an apostle in a general sense. I'm a messenger. I was sent, but the one who sent me is Jesus Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1.1, he'll say, Paul, and a, a messenger of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So everybody see the two ways apostle can be used. Paul says, did any men send me? No church sent me, no organization. Jesus himself sent me. Um, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we learn a little bit more about what Paul thinks it means to be an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, he says this, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 9, he said this, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What is Paul saying there? He said, I've been sent by Jesus Christ, and I have what? I've seen him. Okay, now what that tells us is there's apostles in a very general sense, but Paul says there are a group of apostles, a group of men who have been commissioned themselves by Jesus Christ, and one of the things about these men is they have seen him. In fact, how can you be sent by him if you haven't seen him? Basically, it's what Paul was saying. So we can see here, to be an apostle in this more specific sense means not only one who's been commissioned by Christ, but also one who has seen the risen Christ. That means for Paul, he knew that he was one of those very few people, those very few men who were going to be the foundation of the, of the church. He was keenly aware as an apostle that he carried an authority to govern and teach the churches of Jesus Christ. And so he, is, he has seen Christ, he has been commissioned by Christ to carry his message, to carry his word to the people. Everybody with me? Okay, now, I want to stop for a minute and absorb what that means. That means that, let's say for example, we all get together in here and we want to send a message to somebody and you... We vote, and you say, well, we want to send Derek as our messenger. And then, then, so what would we do then? Once you decided for me to send the message, what would you tell me? Huh? You'd give me the message, right? I mean, I'm your representative. We would decide, this is the message we want you to say. Go tell it to the people. 
So somebody has given Paul a message. Who is that person? Jesus. Jesus Christ. See, what that means that when you read Galatians, you're reading the very words of Jesus. This isn't just Paul over here thinking, man, I've got to take care of this issue. There's all kinds of problems. I've got to write all this down. No, if Paul is really an apostle, if he's really been commissioned by Jesus Christ, when you read Galatians, you are reading the very word of the King of Kings. Okay? So we want to bring this up at the very beginning as we go through this study. These aren't the words of Paul. These are the words of who? These are the words of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks with the authority of the King of Kings. There we go. Shut it off. So, so here's the thing. This is one of the things. How many Christians go around crying out to Jesus for some message, some God, give me a message. Give me a revelation. Give me a dream. But they make almost no effort to really read and study the Bible. Let me say that again. How many Christians are out there just thinking, God, just give me a word. Give me a dream. Give me a revelation. Give me a message. But they, all, they make almost no effort at all to really study and read the very words of Jesus. Okay? The fact is, in, in Christianity today, and I know this because I was one of those people, most people treat the Bible as kind of a spiritual self-help book. You don't read it very much except for when you get in trouble. Then you go looking for scriptures that particularly apply to your trouble. Right? Um, but the practice of submitting... Now listen to this. The practice of submitting ourselves completely all of our ideas and our attitudes and our behavior to the scrutiny and absolute authority of the apostles is very, very, very rare. You will find very few Christians that completely submit themselves to the Word of God. Very few. And by the way, I would count myself in that. I want to. I know I should. But we've all got these little things we kind of keep to the side. Yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that, but this one here, uh, that's kind of hard. I'm telling you, it's very rare that we submit everything uh, to the authority of the Bible. Now, somebody tell me why this is. Why do you think that is? It's so rare to find somebody that says, man, every aspect of my life I'm going to submit to these words. It's our human nature. This is why we need to be saved by Him. Okay. It's human nature. Shame. Shame. Okay. Anybody else? Too many outside influences. Too many outside influences. Afraid of knowing the truth. Okay. Afraid of knowing the truth. I think there's... Uh, uh, those are all good answers. They're all right. I wanna, there's three things I want to uh, point out this morning. Um, I think there can be different reasons. That, for example, let's just look at very general stuff. If you're an unbeliever, you don't care. Right? If you're not a believer, you don't care what the Bible says. In fact... I, you, I shouldn't expect you to care. It's kind of crazy to me that as Christians, we expect unbelievers to act like Christians. That makes no sense at all. They're not Christians. In fact, for them to even understand the Word, they've got to be born again and regenerated. We've talked about that over and over, haven't we not? And so for some, unbelievers have no respect for God's Word. They're not going to submit themselves to God's Word because they're unbelievers. There also may be Christians who the Bible would call carnal or fleshly Christians who they don't they're not at this point in their life Jesus Christ is not their master he's not the, 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 the master of their life they're not submitting everything to him and so the instructions of his apostles like here in the book of Galatians doesn't mean very much or hold much weight but then there's this other group these are Christians and let's say I will just count everybody in this room this way these are Christians who really do love Jesus. And they want Jesus to be the master of their life. And they would gladly submit to the authority of Scripture, but they have a problem. And one of their problems is, is over the years, they've developed a relationship between them and the Bible where it's kind of the Bible and what the Bible means is kind of hazy and foggy. In other words, they don't really understand the Bible. They don't really understand how it all flows together. They don't understand a lot of verses, a lot of passages in the, in the Bible. Okay, um, Now, I said I, I know because I was one of those people. I, there were many, for years and years and years, there were many parts of the Bible 
that I didn't read. And there was a lot of parts of the Bible that I didn't understand. Can anybody else raise their hand? Um, so what I did is I just focused on well-known scriptures. I'm telling you, there's probably 90% or 99% of y'all do the same thing. You don't really understand the Bible, really. You don't, you don't know how it all flows. You don't know what certain things mean. So you kind of back off from it and say, man, it's just over my head. I don't really understand it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on things that I know. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. For God so loved the world, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. If you have faith as a mustard seed, he that is in me is greater than in the world. But if I ask you, where is that found? You might say, no, I got no idea. What is, it, what, what is the context of that? What, what's going on when, when the uh, apostle or Jesus said that? You'd be like, I got no idea. <laughs> In other words, you don't really know what it means. So what you're doing is you're just kind of using the Bible as a self-help book. Right? You, you just reach in and pull out a scripture and, and say, boy, I'm going to hang on to that. That's gonna, is everybody with me? Am I making any, any sense here? Now, part of that, I did the same thing. Part of that was my fault because I didn't study the way I should have. What I did is I relied on teachers. I relied on preachers to tell me what Scripture meant. But part of it was the fault of the preachers and teachers that I relied on for so many years. They would say that all Scripture is inspired by God. They would say that all Scripture is authoritative, authoritative but they didn't preach all of the Scripture. There, let me tell you, even today, there are scriptures in the Bible I've never heard a sermon on. Never. Did we, okay, so here. And when they, by the way, when they did preach on a, on, a, on a scripture, they relied on some kind of vague and imprecise generalizations. How many sermons have you read on where they take a scripture and they read it and you think, okay, this is going to be good. They're going to really tell me what this means. And then they t- take off and tell a bunch of stories. And at the end of the day, you thought, man, I still don't know what. How many of y'all have been in sermons like that? I, listen, I sat in thousands of them. And I'm so excited at the beginning. They're going to tell me what this means. This is going to be good. And I get my pen ready, and at the end, my pen's still sitting there. Because they never explained what it was. They just went off. Basically, what they did is they just used the Scripture to jump off into a nice, entertaining sermon. Okay? Now... Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So I Googled how to preach. You ever Googled how to preach? Go Google how to preach. You'll find some interesting stuff. So here's a website that I found on how to preach. And it looks good, doesn't it? It's a nice website. In fact, I, I want me to read this to you. You probably can't read it. It says this. Now this is good. It says, if you're going to preach anything in this world, this has to be your number one topic. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now how does that sound? That sounds really good. Uh, we have no other valid message if we don't preach the gospel. The good news of Jesus' life and resurrection is the fundamental tenet that we hang all our teaching on. It is the root of our testimony, the whole basis of all Christian outreach, and the essential ingredient in how to preach. Now that sounds good. I have no problems with that until you read on. Now this is how, when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, this is how this guy tells you how to preach. And I am not, this is cut and pasted verbatim. You do not need a concordance. You do not need a book of scriptural reference. You do not need to look up a whole lot of stuff on the internet, and you certainly do not need any theological books written by other people. God is never boring, and He would never insult His children by offering them second-hand goods. What He will do is inspire you to share your convictions, your testimony, and your own intimate knowledge of the kingdom if you let Him. His offer to provide all you need includes whatever antidotes or experience you will need, any preacher who starts off like this, a funny thing happened to me this week, will be sharing right out of their own Christian walk. It will be real. If God has called upon you to preach this Sunday, He will always have already provided you with whatever you need to make your points. You will be obedient and you will be preaching the gospel. In other words, so let me go to the next one. You'll see what he says. I believe in preaching spiritual revelation. I do not believe in studying up some subject and sermonizing a whole lot of other people's opinion. To share spiritual revelation, you must first get it. And the only way I know to do this is to take your Bible into your quiet place and start praying and reading and allowing yourself to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. The truth you discover in this context will be inspired revelation 
and will effectively be God speaking to his people when you stand up to share on Sunday morning. Does everybody see what that guy's saying? When you get ready to preach, go in a room with your Bible, nothing else, and you pray and let the Holy Spirit unveil these truths to you. And then you take those truths to, uh, to your, to your uh, flock on Sunday morning. Now guys, that is absolutely wrong. It sounds good, doesn't it? You've all heard that kind of thing. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Are you telling me? Are you telling me that in 2,000 years God has never revealed the truth of that passage to somebody else? Is that what you're saying? And in fact, how do I, somebody does anybody know a scripture that would tell me that's wrong? Nobody? Okay. Huh? Okay, hold on. I'll show it to you in just a little bit. We'll come to it. All right. We are not going to do that in this class. I did not get in a room this week. I did not get in the room with my Bible, and, and I didn't got rid of everything else and just sit down and say, Lord, what do you want me to teach him? I did not do that. Okay? In fact, one of the things that we do in this class is we teach exegetically. That's a big, fancy word. And all that means is we take a book of the Bible, and we go through it verse by verse. Okay? This is opposed, by the way, to topical teaching where we would come in each week and cover a different topic. Which is, by the way, what that guy says you should do. Go in a room, pray, Lord, what's the topic you want me to give them this week? We don't do that here. I'm not going to do that here. I take a book of the Bible and I go through it from verse 1 to the end. Now, by the way, I don't have a problem with either method. Just so you'll know. But I wanted you to know why we do what we do. Why do we do what we do? We've been doing this for years now. I don't know how many years, but several years. We go through, we've gone through Acts, we've gone through Ephesians, we've gone through Hebrews, we've gone through Romans, we've gone through John, and now we're at Galatians. Why do we do it this way? Why do I not do it that way, and why do I do it this way? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you why. Okay? Now, just recently something came to my attention. And um, there was a guy by the name of Ed Stetzer who works with Lifeway. Uh, you know the, the Lifeway, the Christian bookstores. He works with, with their organization. And he interviewed Andy Stanley. Everybody know who Andy, Andy Stanley is? What's his daddy's name? Charles. Charles Stanley. He's got a big church in, um, in um, Atlanta. So he interviewed Andy Stanley. And I got no problem with Andy Stanley, but I want you to see something here. So he asked Andy Stanley this question. What do you think about preaching or teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible? Which is, by the way, what we do. This is what Andy Stanley said. Guys that preach or teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, that's just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. That isn't how you grow people. No one in the Scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that in the Scripture. Okay? Now, again, I don't... I got no problem with Andy Stanley, but if he wants to say that, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address it. Okay? So... Everybody see that? All right, so let's see what's going on. So here's my first question. Is exegetical preaching, is doing what we do, unbiblical? Okay? Now, so again, Andy Stanley said no one in the Scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that. Another guy by the name of Brad Bigme, who's a, church of a, big, uh, a pastor of a church in Kentucky, said this. There's no biblical record of the Apostle Paul or any other disciples ever preaching exegetically verse by verse sermons from a book of the Bible. Okay, now let me say first of all that that is true. Okay, it's hard to find examples of someone teaching in Scripture from Scripture. Everybody with me? But think about it, wouldn't that kind of be like finding characters in a movie, stopping and providing commentary on what they just said? In other words, the, the, you know, think about uh, I'm Paul and I'm out there and I stand up to preach a sermon, and I begin to preach, and I say, and I stop and say, well, I just gave you some truth, let me expound that for you. Is everybody with me, what I'm saying? In other words, they're, they're delivering the truth. In most cases, he's delivering the, the gospel. Jesus said, this is a new command I give unto you. They're explaining things that happened in the Old Testament. So, in other words, the writers in the, of the Old Testament and the New Testament most times are speaking new things. They're speaking new truth. It would make no sense for them to comment or exegete on what they just said. Does that make sense, what I'm, what I'm trying to get across there? However, 
When you read the Bible, you will see that Scripture is always saturated with Scripture. In fact, in the New Testament, it, it occurs 850 times where New Testament writers reference something that happened in the Old Testament. We see Jesus discussing doctrine from the Old Testament with the scholars from the age of 12 onward. We see Him resisting... How does, how does He resist Satan? He uses the Word. We see Him daily contending with the Pharisees over the Scriptures. The most famous sermon in the history of mankind, which is a Sermon on the Mount, if you go back and look at it, Jesus is working His way through the Mosaic Law. And He's telling people, the old bo- the, it, you say this, I say this. You say a man cannot divorce his woman, I, his wife, I say this, right? He, he's constantly, what's He doing? He's explaining the new law. He's explaining the new way that we're to obey what that old law really meant. By the way, the same can be said for Peter's sermon in Acts 2. You can go back and read it. Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. They're going back to the Old Testament and saying this is what the Scripture really means. Everybody with me? So we see examples of that throughout. Uh, Brad Vigney said this. Now I want you to watch this. Jesus preached topical sermons. If Jesus thought it was effective, then so do I. Seriously, when you read through the Gospels, you don't see Jesus gathering a crowd and then starting to preach or teach verse by verse through one of the Old Testament books of the Bible they had at the time. He used visual illustrations, and he met the people right where they were, and he taught using just a verse or two for the basis of his teaching. It was hard-hitting, and it did not compromise God's truth, but but it was not an in-depth explanation verse by verse through the book of the Bible. So what he's saying is, let's see how Jesus did it. Jesus used parables, did he not? He used visual illustrations. Now, that sounds good, but I want to remind you all of something else, okay? There's nothing wrong with... Now, by the way, there's, I want to make sure we understand what I'm saying here. There is absolutely nothing wrong with telling a story, relating a personal antidote, or you, uh, using a visual illustration in a sermon. There's nothing wrong with that. Pastor Henry does it. I do it. They have their place, and they can be very helpful. But the question is this. I always ask, are you using that, that antidote to help explain the Scripture? Or are you just using the Scripture... To, as a jumping off point so everybody can see how funny you are. Does everybody see the difference? There's nothing wrong with using visual illustrations to help explain a scripture. I do it all the time. I think it's in, incredibly helpful. But the focus is the scripture. Right? I'm just, I'm just saying this is, how, this is helping you explain the scripture. Too many times, as I mentioned earlier, we'll say, they'll say turn your Bibles to the scripture and you get your pen ready and they spend the rest of the sermon just going down rabbit trails, and they never explain what the Scripture means. Okay? So again, when you rely on those things at the expense of Scripture, whether you realize it or not, you are hiding the truth, not revealing it. In fact, let me prove that to you. Matthew 13, uh, 1 through 3. That same day, Jesus went out of the house, and He sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about Him, and He got into a boat, and He sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, And he told them many things in parables. What are parables? Stories. Told them many stories. And the disciples came to him later and said, Why do you tell them stories? And Jesus replied, I tell them stories to help them understand the things of God. Now, is that what he said? Is that what he said? Somebody, is that what he said? No, it's not at all what he said. This is what he said. The disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in stories? And he said, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. For the one who has, the more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in stories. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. See, the reason Jesus taught in parables wasn't to reveal truth, it was to concealed truth. It was to hide it. And and it amazes me how many people to this day will tell Jesus taught them stories to reveal truth. And that's not what he said at all. He said, no, I'm hiding it from them. It's been given to you to know it. I'll explain it to you, but to them I just tell them stories. See that? Does everybody see the danger here? There's nothing wrong with stories 
as long as they're revealing truth, as long as it's used to help us understand Scripture. But if the stories become the focus, you're not revealing anything. You're hiding it. Okay? I'm absolutely convinced that that's what's happening today when preachers and teachers rely on stories and illustrations at the expense of Scripture. Truth is not being revealed. It's being hidden. Okay? I'm not going to do that. I will not do that. You know, in here, it's all about Scripture. It's all about truth. Week after week after week after week. Brad Bigney goes on, There is no command in the New Testament instructing pastors to preach or teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he doesn't take time to exhort him to preach in a certain manner. He simply says to preach the Word. That's 2 Timothy 4.2. By the way, I agree wholeheartedly. Preach and teach what? The Word. Not part of the Word. Not some of the Word. What? All of the Word. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to do all of it. I'm not going to hide anything. I'm not going to skip anything. It's, it's all the Word of God, and, that, and we're going to cover all of it. Now, here's what it comes down to, and this is, I, I don't want you to understand this. Whose responsibility is it to grow people? Andy Stanley says this, All Scripture is equally inspired, but not all Scripture is equally applicable or relevant to every stage of life. I, by the way, I agree. He said this, my challenge is to read... Now, okay, now I want you to listen to what he says. My challenge is to read culture and to read an audience and ask what is their felt need? What do they need? Or perhaps what is more important, what is an unfelt need that they, they need to feel? In other words, he says, I, I have to come in and I have to read y'all. And what do you guys need? And in fact, I don't even understand this. Somehow or another, I have to be a mind reader to see what you need that you don't even know you need. That's what he's saying. Does everybody see that? I need to look, kind of, do some kind of Vulcan mind meld or something and and figure out what do they really need. Listen, as I said earlier, I don't care if you teach topically or if you teach exegetically. As long as you teach the entire Word of God. But here is the main reason I chose to do it exegetically. Okay, And that is this. According to Stanley, what drives a particular topic that he preaches on a given Sunday is that he has to read the culture. He needs to understand their needs. I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I am not the Holy Spirit. It is not my job to read your heart and read your mind and grow you. That is not my job. I can't do it. I would, I would mess it up terribly. Okay? It's my responsibility to study the Scripture and explain it to the best of my ability. It is the Holy Spirit's job to take that Scripture and apply it to your heart and change you and encourage you and edify you and build you up. That's His job, not mine. And I think a teacher or a preacher makes a big mistake when they take it on themselves to try to figure out what it is that people really want, what people really need. In other words, you're stepping in to the job of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? I'm just not going to do that. I can't do that. I mean, that's kind of crazy when you think about it. Let me go back and give you one more story from him. By the way, this is in the whole article that he was saying. Why does he do what he does? This is his reason why. He says, I believe the true defining moment of my life as a communicator took place when I was in seminary. I was asked to do a chapel for the high school academy at First Baptist Church, Dallas. So I got the message all ready to go, and I was going to preach on the story of Naaman. And God told him to dip in the water seven times, and he would be healed. I had all this great stuff. I was sitting in my one-room efficiency apartment, and I was thinking, these kids have heard it all. They go to church all the time. They are not going to remember this sermon. This is just another chapel. What can I do so they can remember this? Now, okay, notice what he's saying. What can, what can I do? It's my job to make them remember this. So this is what he did. So I'm, He said, I'm going to come up with one phrase, and I'm going to say it over and over so many times that they can't possibly forget it. So I came up with this phrase, to understand why, submit and apply. That was over 30 years ago, and I still remember it. So I told the whole story, and I said the bottom line was to understand why, submit, and apply. And I said that God is going to ask you to do some things that you might not understand why, 
but you must submit and apply. I had them say it over and over. Three years go by, and I'm working in the college department in the same church, and a freshman walks in and says, I remember you to understand why I submit and apply. He didn't remember my name. He wasn't even sure where he'd seen me before, but it stuck in his head, and I'll never forget thinking, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. Now, what's wrong with that story? He builds him up. Okay, builds him up. What else is wrong with the story? Where's the scripture? See, he, he, he says, I'm going to come up with a saying that they're going to remember. And that's, that's it, it's all, it's my job to come up with a way they can remember this. So I'm going to come up with this saying. Um, he goes on, I want to take all this stuff in the Bible and I want to say it so simply that it gets so lodged in people's hearts. Now here we go. That in the moment of transition or temptation or whatever it might be, they think... What is that statement? What is that phrase? Guys, that is, that is terrible. When Jesus, in the moment of temptation, what did He do? What did He pull out? He pulled out the Word of God. He didn't pull out a phrase. He didn't pull out a little pithy little saying that you put on t-shirts. He pulled the Word of God. Guys, that's, that is, I just can't get over how wrong that is. Little sayings don't mean anything. You better know the Word of God. You better be able to pull the Word of God when you need it. Not little sayings. You see where that leaves a church? It leaves us with churches where the sheep are starved for green pastures and ripe for being ripped apart by doctrinal wolves, mired in the traditions of men, incapable of renewal or revival. It, it is so important that Scripture be interpreted correctly. 2 Timothy 2.15 Paul says, be diligent to present yourself to prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handing accurately the word of truth. We need to know the word, not, not little sayings. Um, I go back, remember earlier I said I would give you this scripture. You remember the guy that said, when you go into a room, when you want to preach, just go into a room, shut the door, and just pray. And don't, you don't need to read any books or anything like that. This is, what the, this is why that's wrong. Paul said this, and he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, and some teachers. Okay? Why did he give you teachers? I gave you teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up to the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Listen, for 2,000 years he's given us teachers. Paul was a teacher. Paul was an apostle. He's given us pastors and evangelists. Those men, their job was to build us up, to equip us for the ministry. What does it say about me if I come get ready to preach and I say, you know what, I don't need any of that stuff. I'm just going to go over in a room and I'm just going to get all this truth myself. See, I'm stepping... Does everybody see that? I'm stepping completely away from what the Word of God says. He says, I gave you teachers. Why would I ever come to this book and think that He's never taught or reveals that truth to anybody else? I just need to go in a room. That's insane. So let me tell you, when I prepare a lesson, I don't... I, do I pray about it? Yes. But I, I open up, I go to the internet, I go to men that I respect, men that I know are great teachers of the Word, and I say, what do they say about it? And I go to every, every teacher I can, and I find all these things, and I put them together. Because that's the way it's supposed to be done. I should rely on my teachers. Everybody with me? Okay? So that's why we do what we, we do. Here's the reason. Listen. The Bible is history's most published, most studied, most translated, and most quoted book. It is also the most misused and the most misinterpreted. Cults, false religion, and false teachers and preachers use it to their own ends. Others just simply misinterpret it. This occurs so often, many people think the Bible has no clear meaning. Okay? Um, but nothing could be further from the truth. Okay? Just because a passage is misunderstood, did we, did we not see last week that, remember when Jesus... Uh, right there at the end, he said something about John. 
he, uh, Peter says, what about that man? And, and, and Jesus said, well, if, I, if he lives till I come, what is that to you? And people immediately misinterpret that and said, John will never die. Everybody remember that? Well, is that what Jesus meant? No. Does that mean that what Jesus said was hazy or had no meaning? Of course not. He, he meant something. He was making a point to Peter. So how many, just because we take passages of Scripture and misinterpret it doesn't mean that it has a, doesn't have a real meaning. Of course it does. Our job is to find out what that, that real meaning is. After Jesus rose from the dead, one of his first recorded acts was to interpret Scripture. Luke 24, 27 He's walking with the men on the road to Emmaus and it says, "In beginning with Moses and with the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scripture. That Greek word translated explain there is a, is a form of the verb which we get our English word hermeneutic, hermeneutics. Okay? In other words, hermeneutics means to, to look at the Scripture and properly interpret it. What was the Greek word that was used? What was the context? What was the passage? Okay, we don't just pull things, we say it over and over, we don't just pull things out of context and put it on a wristband, right? You know, how many times, we said this before, I, uh, Micah grew up playing sports, and I can't tell you how many kids had a wristband, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can hit a home run. I can get this job. I can pass this test. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and context is all about suffering go back and read it in context he's suffered I've been beaten I've been shipwrecked I've been all these things but I can do all things I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me we have to look at passages in, in, uh, in context by the way the, conversely the failure to interpret scripture properly is condemned in the New Testament 2 Peter 3 15 through 16 regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation just also as just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which some are hard to understand. Peter says, you know Paul, he's a smart guy. And some of the things he wrote in his letters are hard to understand. And watch what Peter says, which the untaught and unstable distort as they also do the rest of the scriptures, scriptures to their own. He says, you take, you take people that are... Un, see, that's what that man, that, how to preach, says, you don't need to be taught. Just go in a room. And you know what happens when the untaught pick up scripture? They distort it. They change it. They twist it. And the Bible says to their own uh, destruction. Notice Peter addresses two problems, being untaught and unstable. It's ironic that in our day, many consider ignorance to be bliss when it comes to studying the Scripture. You'll even find people who will mock biblical scholarship uh, as if the study of the Scripture wasn't foundational to the faith. These are the ones that Peter is warning us about. Okay, we are the basic idea of hermeneutics, the basic idea of going into these scriptures is to try to find out what did the author mean? What did Paul mean when he said this? Um, of course, God the Holy Spirit, excuse me, inspired human writers to write scripture using their own language and their own context and their own historical setting. But our job, the job of the interpreter, is to find out what they meant, to come to a clear understanding. Um, of that meaning. This means most importantly that we love the truth and we have a heart to learn even if that, what we learn is not what we hope for. Which by the way happens uh, a lot. Um, example of this, after Jesus rose from the dead he was walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus explained the scripture to them. And what he told the disciples wasn't what they expected. In 2 Peter 3, 15-16 that's, that's not what that is. That's somewhere in, in Mark I think. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, one of the problems that the, the, the Jews had is they didn't believe in a suffering Messiah, even though the Old Testament clearly taught a suffering Messiah. So when he came, they didn't recognize him, did they? Because they, they didn't fit their interpretation. They wrongly interpreted Scripture. We want to interpret Scripture rightly. We want to, so when things come into our life, we can interpret those situations rightly. Does that make sense? So that's what we want to do. I don't believe it was a coincidence 
that Reformation and renewal came to the church in the 16th century because John Calvin and Martin Luther returned to the grammar and syntax of Scripture. They went back and said, what did these men really mean? When preachers began to deal with the text and laymen began to read the text with attentions to its words and phrases and logical connections, um, the Bible broke loose from its bondage and changed the world. Only Scripture has the power to do that, not the sayings of men. Let me give you one more quote. This is from Brad Bigney. This is one of the guys that uh, teaches topically. And again, I have no problem with teaching topically. Uh, This is what he says. Be sure you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's wrong to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. But I am saying if you choose to do that, be careful. Make sure you don't get caught up in your exegesis and the details of your word studies and lose sight of the main thing, and that is change lives. By the way, he's exactly right. There are some men that get so called up in, in the, all of this, they forget that it's about that. Right? Uh, they, they forget that, and that is a danger. Are people changing and growing because of what they're learning from God's Word? Are people being saved? Is the gospel being preached? Is Christ being exalted? Is the cross central in the preaching and teaching? Rather than backing away or watering it down, do we preach and teach the whole counsel of God's Word, even the hard places? You see what he's saying? So again, I don't care if you do it topically or you do it exegetically. Just preach all the Word, even the hard places. Um, our, our, he goes on. If all those are true, then it appears that God in His mercy has been pleased to use both topical and exegetical sermons to get us there. Preaching and teaching topical messages does not mean it's lighter in theology or preparation time. Format or style of preaching is no indication of the level of love for God's Word. I hope that my love for God's Word and my submission to its authority is equal to any exegetical preacher. Okay, So again, that's my thing. I don't care, topical or exegetical. Just make sure you put the time in, study the Word, preach all the Word, and that lives are um, being changed. Now, two more. Let's come back to the first verse of Galatians. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. As we said earlier, if you truly believe that Paul is a messenger sent from Christ, how many of y'all believe that? If you really believe that, then when you read Galatians, you are reading the very words of Jesus. What we're going to study here over the next few months are the very words of Jesus. When you hear Paul, you're hearing Christ. Now, if we really believe that and we count Jesus as our Lord, we will not be satisfied with, with, with your teacher coming in here and telling a bunch of stories. You're not going to be satisfied with that. You're going to expect your teacher or your preacher to come in and to drill down into that scripture and tell you exactly what it means, even the hard things. Do we expect that? Absolutely. And by the way, we, if we really think this is the word of Jesus, that I'm going to study it, I'm going to analyze it, I'm going to sketch it, I'm going to meditate on it, I'm going to research it, I'm going to ponder it, I'm going to stare at it. I'm going to, I'm going to say, man, I want to know what that man said, right? And at the end of the day, I'm going to bow down and I'm going to submit my will to the authority of God's Word. Okay? If we really believe that these are the words of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this study, uh, the book of Galatians.